Well, good morning, everyone. Today is the day that the Lord has made. We are to rejoice and be glad in it. It is a good day to be here to praise the Lord. Isn't that right? Well, if you agree with that, how about let's give God just a real good hand clap of praise today. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. We thank God for this opportunity to be here with you today. And uh, we want us to just talk to you today about doing the right things in the toughest of times. Doing the right things in the toughest of times. Now, to make sure that we're in the right place today, uh, first of all, before I do that, let me ask this question. How many people here are like over-turkeyed from Thanksgiving? Just my show of hands. Anybody? I, I think I am today. So if my suit is fitting a little tight today, it's because I ate too much and I kind of have this Alfred Hitchcock profile thing going. See, if you laughed, you're old enough to know who Alfred Hitchcock is. That's, <laughs> that's, that's right. So, uh, but nonetheless, nonetheless, we want to talk today about doing the right things in the toughest of times. As, as we celebrate our um, holidays and the season of holidays, it's, it's kind of important to remember that not everybody is, is as well off as some of us are. There are people in this world that go through great difficulties, not only during the holiday season, but also uh, at any other time, at all times of the year. Uh, They go through great difficulties. There are people in our neighborhoods, in our families, and yes, there are some of us that are right here in this room today that have difficulties during the holiday season and perhaps even at other times during the year. And so to make sure we're in the right place today, if you've had problems in your life, if you've had difficulties in your life, then what I want you to do is just throw your hand up real fast. Don't let anybody see you because all your friends think that you are got everything under control. Just if you've had problems, just throw your hand up real fast like that so we can make sure that we, yes, we've had people that have had difficulties, have had some problems. And so how do we deal with those things? How do we do the right thing in, in, in those seasons in our lives, in the toughest of times? Well, in the, in the Bible, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, the Apostle Paul gives us a bit of a prescription that we can use to understand how to deal with life when life becomes tough. And the Word says to us today, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, this passage of Scripture is really a part of a list of Christian do's and don'ts that the Apostle Paul is sharing with the church under the auspices of the Holy Spirit. It is interesting to note that this is a short sentence that contains straight-to-the-point directives. And all three of these directives, to, uh, to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks, all three of those directives really tie into the final clause in that sentence in verse 18. And that clause says, for this is 
the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's will. We do these things, we, we practice these things because they are the will of our Father, our Father who is it, which is in heaven. Now also, not only are they, they God's will, but we also practice them because God is sovereign over life. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But God is sovereign over our lives. I am thankful personally for the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over our lives. So the, when, when you look at another translation, I just read to you in the English Standard Version, but the Message Bible says this says, be cheerful no matter what. Oh my goodness, no matter what? Be cheerful no matter what. Pray all the time. I know we're doing that, right? Thank God no matter what happens. Thank God no matter what happens happens. Wow. Those are some directives that are interesting to say the least. The question that's before us though today is how? A lot of times us preacher types, we always tell you what you ought to be doing. You ought to do this and you ought to do that. But today we really want to look at delve into the idea of how do we do these things in the most difficult moments in our lives. Because you know what the truth is? It's kind of easy to do those things when everything is well, when the sun is shining in my life, when all is in order, when my kids are behaving, when the family's together. All of those things are kind of easy to do. But when the bottom drops out, How much rejoicing am I really doing? When the bottom drops out, how much praying am I doing? When the bottom drops out, how am I giving thanks? And when you minister, how do you minister to people who are in that circumstance in their own lives? How do we share Christ with those who are hungry? How do we share Christ with those who can't pay their bills, whose rent is due, who don't know that they, whether they're going to live uh, uh, to, and be fruitful for another day? How do we share Christ with people who live in crisis 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 366 in leap year? How do we do that? How do we deal with those situations? How do we keep in our own personal lives, in difficulty, a rejoicing demeanor, a praying habit, in addition to having what I call an attitude of gratitude in the most difficult circumstances in our lives. This passage suggests to us, brothers and sisters, three important practices for Christians, even in tough times. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. So what does this mean? To rejoice and to be cheerful no matter what means to focus on the source of our joy. To focus on the source of our joy. Our God is undoubtedly the source of all Christian rejoicing. 
often we forget this very fact when life becomes difficult. Even and especially in the most difficult times in life, we ought to be able to rejoice in the fact that God is the source of our joy. Now, for some of us, we've looked to other things in the past in our lives to be the source of our joy. Some of us have counted on relationships to be the source of our joy. Some of us have counted on our families, our children, to be the source of our joy. Some of us have counted on the size of our bank account to be the source of our joy. And some of us have counted on our jobs or or what we have accumulated materialistically in life to be the source of our joy. And, you know, just because you have XM radio doesn't mean you have joy. Is that right? Just because you're driving a new vehicle doesn't mean you have joy, although it can be a little more comfortable. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is we've looked at material things as the source of our joy. And as believers, we should find the source of our joy in our relationship with Christ Jesus and the Father who is in heaven. That is a source of our joy. So even in the most difficult times in life, There are four things I want to tell you that we can rejoice about. We can rejoice because of of what God has already done for us, what he is doing, and what he will do in the future. What is God's resume in your life? Hasn't God already done great things for you? Hasn't God already made his, his presence felt in your life? Well, of course he has. You're here today as a testimony to the fact that God has already done some great things in your life. God's resume is pretty good. God has done great things. We have a little saying in church I come from, said, um, uh, uh, we, this little saying says something like this, says, if God doesn't do anything else for me, he's already done enough. If he doesn't do anything else, could I be angry with God? No, I couldn't because he's already done enough. I mean, for, for some of us, we know what God has done in the past. We remember what I call our BC, that before Christ. What were you like before Christ? Before Christ came into your life, what did God do for you? Did God rescue you from some decisions that you made that were just so crazy, you're just surprised that you didn't end up dead? Amen. Or you're surprised that you didn't lose your mind for the crazy stuff that you were doing. Now, if that's you, just throw your hand up real fast. Don't let nobody see that. They have a lot of respect for you. Don't let them see that. But God has already done some wonderful things in our lives. So we can find joy when we look back over the history of what God has already done for us. And then, not only that, we can find joy in what God is doing right now. As you sit in this sanctuary at Bethel Church in Crown Point, Indiana, think about what God is doing for you right now. Think about the places that you might have been if it was not for Jesus Christ in your life. Think about where you might have been this morning if it was not for Christ in your life. He's doing great things even now. And oh, we don't even have to mention what the future holds. How wonderful it is to know 
that our souls are secure in this relationship with Jesus Christ, that God in the future is going to present to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, that we're going to celebrate with him in eternity, that we'll be around God's throne giving him praise. If you get excited, you can go ahead and clap right now. We, we, <laughs> we are going to really enjoy God for eternity. That's a wonderful thing to know what God is going to do. So in the lowest moments of your life, think about those things, what God has done, what he is doing, and what he shall do. Now, the other thing is we can rejoice in God's character. We can rejoice in his character and his word. The beautiful thing about serving and loving our God is that he never fails. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, God never fails. God never, come on, say it like you mean it. God never fails. He never fails. He never fails. People fail, don't they? You know, one thing about human beings, we not only have the, the propensity for failure, but the likelihood. <laughs> and that's why we have to be careful about putting our joy in, in, in people. But we can find joy in the fact that God's character is such that it's always uh, righteous. He never fails. What God promises to do, he will do. And in your lowest times in life, remember that you serve a God that has promised to meet your every need, that has promised to be with you through those most difficult moments, and he never fails to do that. He always, he always keeps his word. His word and his promises are true. So we rejoice in that. The third thing here is we rejoice in our suffering. Now, I know this is a tough one. I know this is a tough one because some of you today might be going through some things that, that we would never know about because the beautiful smile that's on your face. But we can rejoice in our suffering. How do we rejoice in suffering. Well, I I think the thing to remember that it's hard to do, but we remember that God is sovereign, that even in suffering, he has purpose. Even in our difficult moments, God has purpose. So we rejoice in knowing that the sovereignty of God carries us through those difficult times. And finally, in this rejoicing piece, we can rejoice because our sins have been forgiven. How many people are happy about that one? That's right. (laughs) Our sins are forgiven. Our consciences have been cleansed. Our hope in heaven is secure through Jesus Christ. We can rejoice and celebrate that even in those dark and difficult days that we face in life. We can know that in spite of everything, I have a Savior that came and died and shed his blood for my benefit. Me, who is so undeserving, that God so loved the world, and you heard Dustin say this, that he gave his only begotten son That whosoever believes in him, I'm so glad to be a part of the whosoever, believes in him, shall not perish, but they shall have everlasting life. That's cause for rejoicing. We are secure through that. We can rejoice because of the cross. 
You know, when I think about my darkest and most difficult days, I try to think about what Jesus endured on my behalf. And I think about the fact that there is nothing that I've gone through in life to this point that remotely compares to what it must have been like to leave the glory of heaven and to come down to an earth like this and be subjected to torture and shame when you are, in fact, the God of heaven. And you come here because you love little old creatures like us, little old sometimey folks like us. You know, we are a little sometimey. You know, one day we're up, the next day we're down. And so God, Jesus came to love us and to give his life and to shed his blood on that cross. And I think about how can I be down when I've never gone through anything like that? And I love Joey Mayfield, but I don't know if I'll go to the cross for him. I'm just kidding, Joey. I would, I would do it for you, man. <laughs> but I, I want us to understand that, that this is, this is who he is and what he has done. And so we can find rejoicing in that. Now, let me tell you something else about rejoicing. Rejoicing has some wonderful side effects. You know, whenever we take medicine, we kind of look at what are the side effects. And these days, I wish they would take those commercials off the air. Don't you? You know, they tell you about the medication. They say, some guy comes on talking real fast. This may cause. I don't want to know that. I think I'd rather just be sick than take. (laughs) Side effects are worse than my problem. (laughs) But nonetheless, rejoicing has some great side effects, folks. Great side effects. Here's one of them. First of all, rejoicing in difficult times sends a message to Satan. What is the message? Well, the enemy thinks that we only delight in God because God protects us. Isn't that what he said to God about Job? He said, you know, you know God, um, you, you, the only reason that people uh, really uh, serve you and, and, and worship you, and the only reason Job is so holy and righteous and all that stuff and living upright is because you protect him. Take away the protection— and he'll curse your name. God says, I'll take that bet. (laughs) And God says, here's the deal. Go ahead, do whatever you want, but don't take his life. And what happens is nothing short of a miracle and a message to Satan because Job in his deepest and darkest hour says something like this. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job says that I will wait. I know my Redeemer lives, and I'm going to wait until my change comes. He still kept his focus on God. Those how could, finding moments of rejoicing in what Job went through, and yet it sent a strong message to Satan, a strong message that we don't just rejoice in God because things are well in our lives, but we know how to rejoice in him even through difficulty. Amen. And then the other message it sends, rejoicing sends a message to the lost. Remember Paul and Silas in that Philippian jail? They were there locked up. And I don't know about you, but If I ever got locked up for preaching the gospel, I'd like to think that I would have that same attitude that Paul and Silas have. But the temptation would be to say, God, I preached your word. Why would I end up in jail for preaching your word? 
Why would that happen? And, 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 and Paul and Silas go into the jail, and instead of feeling sorry for themselves, they strike up a song. And they start singing to the glory of God. And they're having church in the jail cell. And what happens in that moment is that God meets them there and the jail comes open and the jailer says, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. Let me kill myself before my boss gets here. And Paul says, do yourself no harm. We are all here in our place. And the testimony that came behind that meant that this Philippian jailer and his entire family came to the Lord. When you rejoice in difficulty, it sends a message to lost people that God is who he says he is. And he's still God even in the most difficult times in life. I think that's a praiseworthy moment, isn't it? Amen. Amen. All right, let's, let's, let's move on here. here here's, a, here's the second thing. Here's the second thing. Let's move to this prayer. To pray all the time means to make a habit of prayer. Now, I know we pray when we get in trouble. <laughs> At least that's what I used to do. I mean, you know, pray in trouble. You know, uh, when I was a kid, you know, mom would come in. I'd done something wrong. I'm like, okay, God, let her, let her blows be swift <laughs> and few. <laughs> So, and, and so yet, you know, we pray, but, but to pray all the time means that you have this habit of prayer in your life. And, and prayer, let me tell you, is easier in difficult times when prayer is already a habit in your life. Prayer becomes easier in difficulty when you already have a habit of prayer. The tough thing is, is that when you don't have a habit of prayer and difficult times come, and then now you're going, what do I say? How do I pray to God? How do I talk to him about what I'm going through? But when you have a habit of prayer in your life, prayer becomes easier. It's easier to pray in difficult circumstances when I'm already familiar with praying. Now, also, prayer as a habit recognizes the supremacy of God and his will. When I pray, I am reminded of who God is and who I am. I'm reminded that he is higher than me. I'm reminded that God is supreme. He is the creator and I am the creature. Don't want to get those roles reversed. That would be bad. But I, when I pray, I'm reminded when I say, our father who art in heaven. See, that already puts him higher than me because I'm on earth. And so I'm reminded of how supreme he is. I'm reminded of how high he is and yet how low I am and what an honor it is for me to bow before the king of the universe, to be in his presence, to enter into his courts with thanksgiving and into his presence with praise. What an honor it is for us to do that. And so prayer reminds me of that. And as believers in this passage, when Paul says, pray without ceasing, Pray all the time. Paul calls us collectively, as he did this Thessalonian church, to pray all the time when you come together. 
The Thessalonian church was an interesting church because they rejoiced in the midst of hardship. In, in chapter 2, verse 14, they, Paul kind of commends them because they imitated those other believers even in their suffering. Even though they suffered things at the hands of their own countrymen, they still rejoiced and found a reason to, to, to worship God. So Paul says, pray collectively, to always pray when we gather and when we practice our personal devotion, prayer. Whenever believers gather, prayer is always in order, and prayer should be woven into the fabric of our worship experience. Prayer should not in worship just simply be a nod to God. It shouldn't simply be something to impress other people with the eloquence of our words. Sometimes the most effective prayer is from a heart that longs for God, where only thing we can say is, Lord, have mercy. And yet, us preacher types again, you know, we want to impress you with our theological skills. But that's not the essence of real prayer. Real prayer in the worship setting comes from the heart of the individual to the ear of the Almighty. Real prayer is not to impress the crowd, but real prayer is to humble oneself before the king and be able to say, God, you alone are worthy to be praised. That's what real prayer is all about. And when we come together as saints, in worship, when we bow our heads to pray, it's not what's on the screen that matters, but it's what's in your heart and what you are saying to God in this worship experience. And your prayer could be quite different than mine. God is not impressed by the eloquence of our speech. Let me tell you why. He invented speech. <laughs> Now, if I'm the inventor of something and you use it, I'm not really going to be impressed. I invented that. <laughs> but he invented that. So, so we don't have to impress God with how eloquent we can be. What really moves God's heart is when we're humble before him, when we bow before him, when we recognize who he is and how much he loves us. So that, that is prayer. It should be in the fabric of what we do. Now, the last thing in this passage, Paul says, not only should we rejoice, should we pray all the time, but he says, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. And what this means is that we must have an attitude of gratitude. That our demeanor should be thanksgiving. It shouldn't just be something we celebrate once a year. But our demeanor should be that of giving thanks. When we look at the things that we think we have accomplished, we should be focused instead on what God has done for us. And the thanksgiving flows when you realize that all that you have is a gift from him. The fact that you had soap this morning in your shower, thankfully, is a gift from the Almighty. 
Do you know how many people wake up in the morning in this world and don't have soap? I mean, that's something we take for granted. You know, we even fuss about it. Honey, where's the soap? We're out. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, is that all of these things we should be thankful for. And especially in our difficult situations, how dare we complain when we go to the refrigerator and there's food in there, but it's not what we want. You know how many people wake up every day in this world and don't have anything to eat? They would be glad to just have a refrigerator that that keeps air cold. (laughs) They don't have that. And so here, here to give thanks and all things means to have this attitude of gratitude. Now, last week, Pastor Steve rightfully taught us that we do not give thanks for evil because God does not delight in evil. But here's the question. But what do we do when evil or calamity presents itself in our lives? Because evil has a way of showing up and sometimes quite unexpectedly. What do we do? Here's what we do. We thank God for being God in the midst of our difficulty. We thank God for being God in the midst of our struggle. We thank God for being God in the midst of our hard times. Lord, I don't have to thank, th- thank you for evil. Evil is in the world because of sin. But I thank you that you're God and that whatever this evil is, is not more powerful than who you are. Amen. What would you do without God in your toughest moments? What would you do without him? What would we do? We thank God for Jesus who endured that cross, as I said, for our sake. So in the midst of our tough times, in the midst of evil, we thank God for Jesus who endured pain and suffering and shame for our sake. The attitude of gratitude demonstrates to those who don't know the Lord that we trust him no matter what. Again, an evangelistic moment here because when you thank God, when you have an attitude of gratitude, you're saying that I trust God no matter what. I trust him that this is going to work out for my good. When Christians hear that there are going to be layoffs at the job, instead of having a pouty face, we should be thankful that we serve a God that when one door closes, another opens. That if the doors are all closed, we can use the window. (laughs) We have that kind of God, and we can be thankful in those moments of difficulty. And not to worry. And that Thanksgiving says that we trust you, Lord, no matter what is going on in our lives. We trust you. The attitude of gratitude also says to our enemy that we have complete confidence that no matter what our circumstance, our God is working it out for our good. No matter what the difficulty as we move into this, this next phase of Bethel Church's life with the, with the Mission Them 2.0 and the, and the initiatives that we have and the Gary and Hobart and, and in Cedar Lake, we want to have an attitude of gratitude that says to all whom we meet, 
to all whom we meet in Gary, to all whom we meet in Hobart, to all whom we meet in Cedar Lake, to all whom we meet in Crown Point, to all whom we meet all over northwest Indiana, that we have an attitude of gratitude, an attitude of thanksgiving, because we want to send the message that God is working it out for our good. That we have confidence, complete confidence in him. Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. It doesn't just say good things, but it says all things. And I'm just crazy enough to believe that all means all. That means the the most difficult moments in my life mean that that God somehow is in that and he's working this out for my good. I'm reminded of Jeremiah's issue with God and God God says, Jeremiah, I'm the potter, you're the clay. And And then if you've ever seen somebody do pottery, it's real interesting because they put it on the wheel and it spins around and they're smoothing out these rough edges. None of us go to old time pottery over there and buy a pot with all the rough edges on it. We want it nice and smooth and painted up and all those things. Well, guess what? When we have difficulty in our lives, it's a lot like being on God's pottery wheel and he's smoothing out these rough edges in our lives. And he's doing that so that he can make this presentation to himself of a church, as I said, without spot or wrinkle all smoothed out and so that the world can see that here's what God, how much God loves us is that he's removing the things that are rough edges in our lives. And God knows that some of us, myself included, we ought to be thankful God moves some of them rough edges, aren't we? (laughs) We were cutting people up with those rough edges. (laughs) But the Lord came into our lives and removed those rough edges. So all things, brothers and sisters, Work together for the good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So be reminded that when you have difficulty or when you minister to people with difficulty in their life, rejoicing, praying without ceasing, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances is a prescription for you to do the right thing in difficult times. Let's pray together.